the leopard just sat there and suddenly it dropped down on all fours and it crept along the ditch and out of sight and everyone just looked at each other in disbelief. You say, well, I've seen this big cat. Some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 25 of Big Cat Conversations. We have tweaked the episode as planned, so this time we have Wendy from Cornwall as our main guest, and our guest from Somerset will feature in the following show. But this time we also have an extended interlude because we are going to catch up with Frank Tunbridge, both for our word of the week and to hear about two recent reports Frank received here in Gloucestershire, where I'm based. These are two out of five credible reports which have come in through the network of active people in Gloucestershire in late May 2020. And I know there have been interesting reports elsewhere in the country too. So we'll hear from Frank a bit later. We're going to hear from Wendy Winstanley from Cornwall about her experience in taking big cat reports in the recent past and working at zoos and wildlife sanctuaries and working with big cats and seeing people's interaction with big cats at zoos. So, Wendy, thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Hi. Wendy, at the moment you are running Ravenswell Wildlife Hospital. Is that what we call it? Yeah, that's what we call it, yeah. We have small units at home. And everybody up and down the county have their own units. But once Ravenswell is often kicking and we've just about found somewhere for us to call home, then people will be able to bring things down to us as well. Cornwall's a really, really big county. And for an animal that is sick and injured, particularly a wild animal, to go from one end of the county to the other for a care, you know, is needless stress. So to link everybody together will save a lot of stress and mileage on that animal. Okay. What are the main incidents you have to deal with? This time of year, there's lots of baby animals that get turfed out of homes. Poor old hedgehogs get strimmed, so we take a lot of those into our care. Especially now with the current situation, everybody's gone mad in tidying their gardens. Yeah. We've had a lot of wildlife that need help. Financially, is it tougher at the moment because of the circumstances? Yes, definitely. I have a team of six owls and a raven, and we take them out fundraising. And of course, we can't do that. So no funds coming in at all. But we do do things like sponsor one of the owls. We'll put a link to Ravenswell on episode 25 of our website. One of the things you've done in the recent past, I noticed, you trained rats for landmine surveillance work in in Africa. I know that the big African rats get used for that, but tell us about that. Yes, I had one of the African rats. They're not real rats. They're called a muroid rodent, but they look like a giant rat, okay? Mm. And um, they are trained out in Mozambique to search for landmines because they have an amazing sense of smell and they can sniff around and they're so light they don't set it off. But they begin to dig when they smell the explosives. Then they're rewarded with a piece of banana and then they know there's a landmine there. So they're able to clear it up. So to highlight the plight with people being blown up in Mozambique, I decided to have one of these Gambian pouch traps. And um, I trained him and we did pretend landmines and we hid all sorts of things for him to find using his nose. How long does it take to train it? Not very long at all. He would run straight over to the right one. We used to have four or five ones that didn't have anything underneath it. They were miniature uh, frisbees. Hit them, and he would run straight to the one with the banana. Yeah. <laughs> Not only were they trained to sniff out um, explosives, but they're also very good at discovering people with TB, tuberculosis, and they could sniff a sputum sample. Gosh. And they this person has it, which takes about three days, I believe it was, for science to do it. That was then. Yeah. And about 10 minutes for the rat. Brilliant. They're about the size of a guinea pig, aren't they? About that. A bit sort of more elongated and a very long tail. 
Excellent, yeah. It was great fun. <laughs> well, can you tell us about some of your experience with big cats? I mean, you've worked at Porfell Wildlife Sanctuary and you've worked at Newquay Zoo as well. I presume it's yeah. only the zoo that's had big cats. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we had smaller cats at Porfell. But yes, I worked with Puma, uh, Lynx and the Lions at Newquay. Um, we had a lot of dealings, sending people out looking at tracks. Well, in my opinion, the most likely candidate for these animals that out loose would be something like the puma. Yeah. Uh, because they're highly adaptable. Their pud mark or their, their paw mark in soil or whatever is relatively small to the size and weight of the cat. So when taking these prints, I was often told that can't be the puma print. And I should say, yes, big male puma, you know, they can weigh up to um, 100 kilos. They're really big animals. Because of the way the cat's foot is formed, you get a relatively small print. If you look at the palm of your hand, not the fingers, just the palm, the paw print will fit comfortably inside your palm. Yes, I always think three inches by three inches is a good... About that, yeah, that's it. When you think of the size of the animal, which is what? Two metres and a bit long. With tail. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a big old animal, you know. And it's partly because it's digitigrade, isn't it? So the digits are well within the overall sort of foot. Right, yeah. Feet look big, but the, the digits are not so big. When you see a picture of the foot, it's huge. Mm. Because cats walk on their special pads, they're fatty, they work on tiptoe, like you're saying. Mm. They use that for shock absorbers. So that's all neatly tucked in, we know, with their claws that are retractable inside this big soft pad. Yeah. How often did you find that you got to what you thought were legit tracks? And then how often did you get to what you thought were fairly fresh tracks? We got quite a few fairly fresh ones. They were like the day of finding in some cases because they'd been found early morning and we went out afternoon. It's very difficult to say that's 110% a big cat footprint. Yeah. You have to look at how the animal lives and where it's likely to live and the way it moves and the things it does. And you can, you know, by working with them in the zoos, you see all this because you have to be able to look after them properly so they can have a, as near a, a normal life as possible. So the likeliest candidate, I always say, would be Puma. Mm. The Puma's got fairly small head for the size of its body. Its back legs are higher than its shoulders, so it tips up, and it has a very thick tail. Lots of the pictures have, they look very likely, but the tail's very thin. So lots of the photographs are a bit, you think, oh, yeah, and you think, well, no, it can't be. It's not quite right. And, of course, when these pictures are taken or people see them, it's usually in fairly low light. Therefore, you lose depth of field. It's quite difficult to know how close or how far away something is. Yes. Cornwall does seem to have a more of a leaning towards brown puma-type reports. Yeah. I think there are still more black ones now, but Cornwall's always had a good proportion of pumas, hasn't it? I don't feel personally that we can say, oh, we must always draw our conclusions from the native countries of these animals because oh no, they're here. You know, they're in Britain. These are British cats. They do adapt. You know, yeah. if they've got to survive, they will adapt more. And then, of course, if that animal's adapted, its offspring will be doing the same as its parent did. Yes. So it learns down the line. So... Did you get any information or gossip about released pumas? I mean, clearly now they're sort of breeding on and naturalising, but did you get any gossip in Cornwall about where some of the founder stock might have come from? I mean, a lot of it was believed because at a certain time we had the Dangerous Wild Animal Act, therefore people couldn't keep, because believe it or not, people keep them in their gardens, you know. And there are an awful lot of private keepers that are out and about in Cornwall not just the, the zoos we know of. Yeah. There are a lot of private people. And, of course, if they get out, they're not going to say much about it. Mm. Whereas if you're in a zoo or a collection and something escapes, then you have to abide by the law and all kinds of things so you'd know where it was. But some bigger collections, shall we say, then, uh, all those years ago, bred a lot of babies. Mm-hmm. 
they didn't quite know what to do with all these babies, but they were very good for bringing people in to see the babies and were released out there in the wild for them to um, get on with it mm. because there's a lot of moorland, there's lots of it's a good place for them to cope, there's lots of small prey, big prey, places to hide. You know, the infrastructure for the animal is really good on our moorlands. Yes, and all the valleys and woodlands are around them. I think the moorlands themselves can be quite bleak and open and cold and windswept, but it's all the nooks and crannies around them, isn't it? There's lots of rocky outcrops, and um, as long as you've got water, shelter, plenty of food around, on quite a big radius, then you've got a happy cat. <laughs> so you're suggesting that it was almost a parallel to what we've all been watching on The Tiger King, on Joe Exotic, that obviously in the American situation, that was tiger cub petting. So you're suggesting that people in the past were breeding pumas for this same purpose? Yes, I think that they were bred. Of course, in zoos and collections, you breed things and you swap them around for the genetic pool. So then it comes a point when your genetic pool, you have a stop on it. You know, you don't breed any more from those particular animals because otherwise you're going to flood the genetic pool with that. Mm -hmm. So therefore, people still bred them because they were good money spinners. And, of course, years ago, people used to sell them as well. Mm. Like I said, there's so many people out there who actually keep them as uh, private pets. Mm. And then there's the people that would have them as a pet and really not be able to cope with them. There's lots of tales about who people thought it was. Yeah, we won't go into that. But um... no, no, no. Well, there just wasn't one person. There were several. The animals, because not every animal will throw up genetic abnormalities. You know, they will go through a genetic bottleneck and come out the other side. So they're not always going to throw that up because they've been out there long enough, I think, gone through that. They might be slightly smaller because of where they are and because of the way they're having to live, the way they've adapted. So I think perhaps the smaller ones have probably survived better. They don't appear to be as big as the animals that we see in captivity. It's only when you have to look after them veterinary wise as well that you realize just how big these things are they're absolutely massive i put my hand right in you know? mm. <laughs> i think i sent you a photograph <laughs> oh yes yeah yeah okay well can we put that on the website that will be fun yeah, let's go. Yeah. yeah 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 and that gives you a kind of size and that was a female so it's not as big as the males yeah it's the survival of the fittest. I think if you're small or faster, you can hide better as well in the environment that we have here. The species is a very adaptable one anyway. Thousands of years ago, we did have cats, big cats. <laughs> we will be having a future episode on that with Darren Naish, who's agreed to come on the show which to talk about that. And that there is a new book coming out in June called On the Prowl, and we'll be discussing that book on the history of the large cats globally. Darren will be taking us through that issue, so that'll be good. To say they couldn't survive there is, is not right. You know, they, they would be able to survive. Yeah, and, and our winter temperatures are absolutely fine for them compared to the Western states of yeah. America for a puma. Yeah. <laughs> you think of the puma, you know, it's, you get snow. and. <laughs> yeah, they're bringing up kits in minus 20 degrees, aren't they, in Western states? What kind of attitudes did you get received from people when you were getting reports? Were some people concerned or worried? I imagine a lot of people were almost taking it for granted because they were used to reports of big cats and thinking, well, they are around and they're not causing much of an issue. Yeah, I think that's true now. A few years ago, when we certainly when we were doing it, there were people that were worried that it would uh, come down and get the children. But I think, you know, when you speak to people who are, when they come up and talk to you, that uh, this cat isn't going to come down to people in that way. They're too frightened, really. Yeah. They keep themselves to themselves out of the way. Otherwise, we'd be seeing them all the time, wouldn't we? Exactly, yeah. But the quarry operators were not worried, were they? And, and the quarry operators were almost taking it for granted. Is that right? Yeah, they were really interested. They really thought oh, they really wanted it on theirs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a matter of pride or something, yeah, or a talking yeah, point. it's in our quarry. <laughs> no, I didn't find anybody who was worried about it then. They were just really interested. And I think everybody really wants it to be proven or not proven. Yes, 
but not create an invasion and not create a lot of fuss? Because if they are out there and everybody proves it, I hope they don't say anything because we'll have people rushing around trying to get them because that's human nature, isn't it? Yeah. It seems to be human nature to want to protect all of them as well, actually. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's just good that it's an enigma. And I think that if you do get presented with, it's no doubt, it's definitely this. I mean, the last thing you do would go and speak to people on the TV and say, yes, we found it. Look, there's this. You'd just spread it about the people that are interested, wouldn't you? Well, I think that's why in Devon and Cornwall, if a visitor, a tourist or a visitor sees one, they very quickly blab to the press about it, whereas local people are much more cautious, aren't they? And I think if you had a lot of press come rushing down because they've seen it, because a visitor had said so, I think you get the Cornish people who are around saying, no, there's no such thing. (laughs) What about your experience in people's associations with cats, watching them at zoos? This sort of deeper link that some people have and this sort of connectivity with cats. What's your observations on that as working at zoos? Oh, you get quite a few. Lots of people come in and instead of just looking at, oh, yeah, that's a cat, whatever, they will stand there for quite some time, really sort of connect with the animal, and they'll talk to you about it. They'll ask you, you know, what does it do in the wild? Where does it sleep? And they really relate to the animal. Some people are just looking at it as a novel thing because it's at the zoo. And then you get other people that go, oh, no, it smells. <laughs> oh, God, then it smells awful. And they route, they go off quickly, you know, and you think, what? <laughs> they completely miss what they're looking at. You know, you look into the eyes of these creatures, there's this uh, amazing connection. Was there any kind of trend in the people who had this deeper connection? Was it just because they were prepared to spend longer picking up the vibes of the animal? Or do you think they were predisposed to have a more closer shamanic or deeper link? No, I think most people that come and have that kind of experience, it's really a sudden thing with them. They see this creature, they connect with this creature. They feel its energy, its presence then maybe they'll come back again. But it's not always they've come, oh, I want to see a cat because I think that's my spirit animal or something like that. And you'll see them when they've made that connection, they'll come every week because they want to be with this animal as closely as they can. Very often you'll find that the animal will come over to them, the cat will begin to recognise them and come right over and sort of sit by the fence or near enough to where they are rather than just doing their usual thing. Is that because the cat is sensing the calmness and the lack of threat and likes those vibes, do you think? Yes, definitely. It's like the person who's looking at the cat, same thing, is not frightened, especially if it, you know, and the lions, they suddenly decide to do their sort of raw thing and the mouth opens. It's not, oh, oh my God, it's, you know, they kind of watch it. They pick up each other's vibes. So you've got that connection. The cat's very at ease and then the person is as well, like you say, very calm. They want to connect with this, this other being. They feel its energy and I think it works both ways as well. Yeah. And do you think some of the larger cats have that impression, make that impression on people more than other kinds of animals? Or does it just depend on the personality of the visitor and the personality of the individual and what link they make to a different animal? It's not just cats. You get a lot of people who have this thing with cats. You get a lot of people who have them with the deer or with you know the smaller animals. It's just because that's what they find. That energy at the moment is what they're connecting to very enigmatic they have this way of looking straight through you (laughs) yes (laughs) and I think even if you're I mean I've met a couple of wild ones when I was out in Colombia and they don't like you say they kind of melt they don't you have this imagination when you don't know that this thing's suddenly see you gonna roar at you and spring at you and all Mm. the rest of it you know they kind of just turn and gaze at you and then melt away you know they don't run away they just disappear and provided they're not doing anything stupid you know rushing around or anything you just stand for a minute they'll just walk away 
They want to avoid a confrontation. Yeah, they just look at you. I think they can pick up things. So you encountered, what, um, Puma and Jaguar, did you? It was Jaguar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Puma was, I was out in a quite a remote area of Colombia. I was actually doing translocation of the sloth. Um, so we met all the other kind of animals as well. Well, the farm that I was on, bearing in mind their houses are like a straw roof that goes almost to the floor mm. with a wall inside, but you don't get sealed walls or doors or anything because it's too hot. And the puma was living on the outskirts. The guy who owned the property, he was very into his wildlife. He was letting us put different things in there. He was quite glad that the puma was there because it would take off any of the weekly ones. Okay. So it was kind of like you can have that. Yes. Because that's a natural way of life. You know, a, a weaker or an older animal is picked off. What, the livestock? Sheep? Yeah, um, um, cows. Yeah, but smaller ones, surely. Yeah, they're not, not great big things like we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, ranchers I've met in the Western States of America a couple of times were saying, if you've got a tom on your land, on your property, that you know its behaviour and you know it's reasonably consistent and isn't causing too much hassle, don't dispatch it and, and don't right. lose it. It's the devil you know, and it will be replaced by others, and they might be far worse in their behaviour than your resident one. Oh, exactly. He was quite happy to have them there. They didn't come down to the house. They didn't need to. Yeah. You know, there was plenty for them sort of around the area. You knew where things were. I mean, it's like a friend of mine's got a farm and she's got foxes, but she feeds the foxes, so it leaves the chickens alone. You know, <laughs> it's kind of a natural way of things, isn't it? Forming a relationship and getting the animal on the terms that's suitable for both parties. Yeah, I mean, now we fence everything off and if one thing goes as, you know, hell up, but it doesn't work on the moor like that, does it? The same thing happens on the moorlands. You get the weak ones and the old ones. Yeah. So you had an encounter with a jaguar in Columbia? We were on the mules and uh, we were going through it and light was dropping. And he said, don't worry, we have a gun. He said, and that's for the Jaguar, if anything happens. I said, is Jaguar more likely to come for us than uh, the Puma would be, you know? And he said, because with the Jaguar, Jaguar, <laughs> he said, there is no, it kind of just gets what it has to. It's the kind of thing that um, you're in its way mm. and it will clear you out of its way. More than I need to feed, I'm going to conserve my energy. So we were going down the tracks on the mule and the light was falling. You could hear things, you know, the rustling of animals and stuff. And the guy who was beside me, he put his hand on the bridle and he said, in Spanish, keep still, and pointed. And just the other side, because it's jungle, of uh, sort of stands were, I could see it going down sort of parallel to us. So we turned the horses and went left instead of going straight on. And um, it carried on walking. <laughs> so, yeah, it was amazing. Did the mules pick up on it? Yeah, their ears went back and we just held tight and we walked away. So we walked away, we didn't run away. And the mules were quite happy because you know, they're an animal that you have to be in control of. And if you are in control, they're happy. So if we were there all panicking, they would have panicked and there would have been all sorts happening. We watched the direction it was taken and we took evasive action, <laughs> if you like. But yes, it was. It was amazing. It was a spotted one, not a black one. It wasn't a, a light-coloured one, you know, with the light, because it was slow light. Did the sounds of the forest change because there was a large predator about? Did it all go silent or were there warning calls or something? It didn't go silent. There was all sorts of the same sort of noises. There wasn't really anything different. I think if maybe a prey item had been close by, you would have heard an alarm call go up. But no, it was quite, um, he was just minding his own business. <laughs> Thank goodness. You don't think it was in a stalking mode? It wasn't in a hungry mode? It was just travelling through? It was moving from A to B. But because they are so unpredictable, 
That's why they had firearms. And their capabilities are more than a puma's. In terms of the ones that you've ever helped in captivity in a, in a zoo or whatever, if you'd have released any of those, how do you think they would have fared the first few days out in the wild? Do you think they would have come back for food at regular times or certain times before they went completely feral? They would go completely wild, unless it had been hand-reared. Yeah. cat's instinct is far above everything. It would have get out there and it would have run off and it would have... What now what? You know, something small runs past and that pounces on it and that's that. You know, like sometimes if you have a hand-reared animal, say a bar now, it doesn't do well in the wild if it gets lost because it doesn't recognise that the food moving is food and it's the wrong colour. <laughs> that doesn't happen with cats. Yeah, but if they haven't been trained by their mother, they're not going to fare well the first few attempts, are they? No, but hunger is going to overcome everything. Doesn't that mean that they're going to go back to where they know there's food given to them at five o'clock every afternoon? No, I don't think they would with a cat, not with a cat. Some animals would go back to because it's a routine and they're hungry, but I would definitely not say that of a cat. I mean, there are instances where they've escaped from a zoo and the zoo's taken ages to try and get it back and they've not been able to get it back and it's come nowhere near the zoo. They've had to put traps and all sorts up for it. It's never gone of its own free will back. Clouded leopard in Kent, wasn't there, and a puma in the Isle of Wight. And yeah. What about, though, the allegations that there have been ones almost let out on a cat flap basis by various people? That, and these are pumas in particular. And I can think Leicestershire, this has been alleged, and it's been alleged in southern Devon, that... Pumas yeah. were going out and coming back because almost like letting the domestic cat out and it would come back for food. Well, if that did happen, I'm not saying it didn't or couldn't, but if it did, it's highly likely that the cat has been hand reared. So it's used to right from its eyes opening, then it's used to doing these things, going out a cat flat, being fed at a certain time. Whereas even if it's born in captivity, it's still reared by its mother. And moves on to another zoo. And when you have them in zoos, you have to be very sure that you don't interact with them so that they are wild, so that they will breed successfully. If you <laughs> treat it like a pussycat, it's not going to breed. <laughs> it want to breed with you, not the other cat. <laughs> Therefore, you're not going to do have a very successful breeding program. So if they are in zoos and things, then they're, they're going to go off. They're going to be as wild as they can. If they had been released to go out walkies for a part of the day to, to come back to be fed at times, what if they do predate something, picking on the local rabbits? They're suddenly then going to get a, the hang of that and feel that's probably a nice life and suddenly become wild. I mean, how could the person predict this cat would come back for its bowl of whatever and not take the neighbour's poodle? Yes, I agree. <laughs> I think that there's that doubt in my mind about those suggestions. I think certainly they were let out as young animals because they there was nowhere for the young animal to go anymore. They were let out. At the end of the day, you've got to have a boy and a girl, haven't you? Sure. What do you just think generally about big cats out in the wild in Britain and possibly naturalising? Have you got any strong view either way about that? If we're putting some things back, then if there are these things out there, then why shouldn't we coexist with them if we can coexist with others? And you think we can? If they're left well enough alone, you know? For Word of the Week for this episode, we are having an extended interlude because we have a guest appearance from my friend Frank Tunbridge from Gloucestershire. We'll get Word of the Week with Frank in a minute, but first of all, we're going to hear some recent reports in Gloucestershire from May 2020. So, Frank, welcome back to the show. You were last on on episode four, talking about all kinds of past experiences from your big cat investigations in Gloucestershire. Nice to have you back for episode 25. Well, thank you uh, for inviting me back. Great. Well, Frank, can we hear about this report from the three sisters that were out walking in a residential part of Gloucester in mid-May, please? 
The actual sighting of this animal was seen on the 14th of the 5th of this year. There were three sisters, and the one that reported to me, she was a veterinary student, and so they're out for their exercise, and they're walking in this area. It's a very busy residential area on the outskirts of Gloucester and large housing estates nearby. There is a medium-sized fishing lake. As I said, these three ladies were walking out, and the way they described it was that suddenly there appeared a big, large black animal, which they first thought was a German shepherd dog. But on the second glance, they looked at it and realised um, it wasn't a dog at all. They could see the long, thick towel, slightly curled at the end, long in the body, with a round head. She described it, believe it or not, in a funny term, saying it's had a Mickey Mouse type head. In other words, she was saying it had quite a roundish sort of head, but it had smallish ears. She was quite gobsmacked and shocked by this, of course. And they watched it at a distance of about 70 yards. The animal casually, very casually, walked across the footpath they were on, then turned left, carrying on the footpath, which then went either to a residential area or to this small wooded area, maybe 100 yards in length by 50, 60 yards across. But it was uh, quite dense at the time because you've got cow parsley at the moment growing in in abundance, which is like waist high. There's quite a few trees there as well dotted around. After she'd sighted this animal, it turned off down this trail. She told me exactly where it went, and I told her I'd go out and investigate this. I went up to investigate where it went, and I was quite surprised how busy the area was, actually. You wouldn't expect a large cat that size to be able to just conceal itself. But as we know, due to urban leopards in India, how stealthy and silent they are, and they can slip away and almost live amongst mankind. Anyway, I walked around the area trying to find some evidence. I took a camera with me, a trail camera, trying to find a place which would be safe to put it up if I did find any evidence. And I walked around the trail where she said the animal went, trying to sort of think where it would go. You, of course, you have to sort of try to think like the animal does. At that time of day, especially because it's quite busy, I think it turned back along this footpath because it had been disturbed. I carried on down and I looked up and down for clues and suddenly I found a track which was going across one side of this small wood and it came out the other side. As I said, it's only like 60 yards across. First of all, I thought it could have been obviously a human track where people just took a shortcut. But of course, people walk in straight lines and this is in the obstacles. But this trail was very sinuous, winding its way around and also it hadn't broken the tops of the cow parsley. I looked closer at it without disturbing it, and I found impressions, a stride length, going across it. And I don't think it was deer, or there was deer up there. I don't think a deer had crossed this. It's quite fresh, this track was, and I think it was quite well used. It was heading towards the fishing lake where, most probably, and we found this in the past, due to this very hot weather, all the animals' natural water sources, like streams, small ponds, etc., get dried up and they tend to come into towns looking for uh, new water sources and this is what it must be doing but ironically i had an email from a lady after this report went into local press went on to across the live on the internet that uh, she had seen one a year before to the same month may in exactly the same place where she saw it near the fishing lakes Frank, what made you think that this was a credible report from the description from the lady in the first place? Which boxes did it tick for credibility? Well, first of all, that she described it as a cat-like animal. Secondly, the way the animal moved, she said it moved just like cat-like. And she described it almost like a very large domestic cat. And by saying that, obviously, it tends to make people think, oh, well, that's exactly what she saw. But no, her description was as large as a German Shepherd dog, very long towel, thick towel in comparison, and this sinuous movement, she said, and casual way it just walked out of sight. But dogs normally trot everywhere, unless they're old, but cats walk their way through life. Just the way she spoke to me and described it quite calm and a little bit shocked by what she saw, that convinced me that, yeah, this was a genuine sighting. Were they concerned that this was a residential area to see an animal like that so close to so many houses? She said, we went down to follow it up, but then three of us decided we didn't want to follow where the animal went in case it had been laying up there in the undergrowth. 
And since then, you've had, because you've been in the paper and your email's been in the paper for any follow-up reports, you've in fact had several. Could we have the latest one you've had? We're not going to say precisely where it is because we are going to follow it up and it could be sensitive. It is one of Gloucestershire's key landmarks and it's where we've had reports before. Could you tell us about that one? The outskirts of Cheltenham. A lady was driving along there at 5.30am on Sunday the 24th, just gone. And she was shocked to see this black animal suddenly dash across the road. She thought it was a dog as well. Once again, she said it was like a Labrador size on this particular one. It went across the road like a rocket, she said. It was that words were us. It was more agile and bounding than a dog would ever be crossing the road. A couple of bounds, it was over the road and gone into the hill opposite. She was quite shocked by this and she admitted to me she was a skeptic up to that point. She went back there the next day, 5.30am. She was shocked to find a deer carcass, a muntjac deer carcass, on the side of the road. All the soft tissue had been removed from it. It was still very fresh, and the tips of the ribs had been chewed off. And she sent me a photograph of it, and it does look very, very cat-like, according to all our reports in the past and all the evidence that we get, and exactly how they actually do it. They order the sera, generally, first of all. And then if they're disturbed, they can back off and maybe come back to it at a later date. But they get all the soft stuff out before they start on natural other parts of it. So it's very typical for cat kill. And also, it's very uh, coincidental, if anything, that the cat was there the day before, exactly in the same area. So this is a very interesting report as well. It's only sort of 20 minutes away from me and myself and Owen. We'll be getting up early and going there for 5.30, one or two mornings the rest of this week, hopefully. I'm borrowing a thermal camera. Although you've got to do that, I never expect much, but you've got to try. We'll do our best. So that's very good to have one report yielding another. But I know you've had some other reports that were some of them were in the past from key areas and some of them are fairly recent. So they're all helpful for building up the picture in Gloucestershire. Just shows you that sometimes you need a bit of action to prompt people to get in touch. And that seems to be what's happened. I think many people cite these big cats by keeping to themselves because they don't want to be ridiculed. But of course, when a report comes out in the paper, obviously they think, oh, look, so-and-so's seen one, so we're not the only one. And then they have more confidence to um, get in touch with me and other people. Great. Okay, Frank, can we move on now to our word of the week? And it's a word that you and I sometimes discuss because we sometimes observe that these cats seem to be possibly adapting a little bit for the British environment. So can you introduce the word of the week and explain why you've chosen it, please? They have adapted quite a lot and uh, changed their habits and behaviour most probably to suit. Anyway, the word of the week I've chosen is cursorial. Cursorial, which means adapted to run. Um, animals that um, got adaptations to run, i.e. longer limbs, flexible spines, etc. It covers carnivores as well as herbivores. So amongst those, um, the herbivores, you've got the deer, you've got the antelopes, and you've got um, horses, zebras, etc. And of course, among the carnivores, you've got uh, wolves, cheetahs. Basically, the way to look at it is it's any animal that can move very quickly, either over a short distance or an animal that is adapted to running a long distance endurance, like a wolf when it runs down its prey. But both the limbs and the spine are adapted to make this animal a cursorial animal. It's interesting to distinguish something like a leopard from a cheetah because a cheetah is a genuine running cat with more endurance than a leopard because it pursues its prey and follows it in the open landscape and trips its prey up, whereas a leopard is much more of a traditional ambush predator running in short explosive bursts without the stamina of something like a cheetah. Leopards still come under the cursorial title. And a lot of it is the actual ratio of the length of spine to the actual length of the leg as well. But not all animals, because they have long legs, are cursorial animals, you see. For instance, the serval has got very, very long legs, but it spends most of its time in the high grass in the savannah. And it needs those long legs to leap up, and so it can see its prey, you see. So it's not really a cursorial animal in some respects, which it does use it to the extent of running. Yeah, it's a very interesting title, it's cursorial. 
the main thing to look at is if the animal can run fast over a long distance or the animal that can run fast in very short bursts and it's a long-legged and flexible spine which makes it um, a cursorial animal. Yes, great. Thank you. And we can only hope that in years to come we may be able to have serious debate about adaptations that may be observed with some confidence in cats in Britain in scientific circles that may happen during our lifetimes it may not but we'll do our best to prompt it frank we're now about to um, return to our main guest for the show who is wendy from cornwall and we're about to start conversation about the deeper connections that people have with animals including cats that she's observed in zoos and she's observed through her work as a shamanic drummer have you got thoughts on deeper connections with animals that some people have how it happens and what it achieves I think you've either got this connection or you haven't, and you know you have it yourself, and animals know that you have it. And instantly, it's almost like, um, how can I say, a love affair between you, you and the animal, because <laughs> you both feel the same sort of um, bond between you. It's just natural. You know you know that the animal picks the vibes up, as they say, and there's this uh, rapport between the two of you. A lot of native peoples have this anyway. And I think a lot of us mostly have got it, but a lot of it is lost. A lot of our instincts have been lost because we don't practice them. And because we're enclosed in this bubble nowadays with electronics and everything, um, we're turned away from nature in many respects. It's just as easy to look at on television, on the internet, etc., rather than go out. There's no substitute for personal observation of animals. Even if you don't see anything, you go out, sit there in the world, and you feel the natural world around you. And you just have to sit quietly and conceal yourself. Before long, you get the animals coming out. Movement is the thing that gives yourself away. And even if you do, the animal does come out. It senses whether you are a friend or foe. If you're obviously a threat to them, they just move off. And this is why I think many people go looking for wildlife and don't have much success in finding it. You've got to actually think like the animal. Most wild animals, they're very difficult to see in the wild, especially deer, large deer like fallow. They blend in so well with the background. And you go looking for deer, and as they stand still, you can't see them. And then suddenly a fly will land on, land on its ear, and you'll see an ear twitch, and you think, oh, it's a deer. And then you can suddenly make out the form of what it is. All animals can conceal themselves. It's just part of their survival instinct. If they didn't have that, they'd be wiped out, you see. Yeah. Finally, Frank, just a quickie. Do you feel lockdown is an issue for big cats or do you think people are just able to notice nature more because they've got the time and that people are slowing down? Or is it a bit of both? Is it that nature is getting a bit bolder because we're not so in nature's face as usual? I think it's a bit of both, like you say. I think what's happening, animals are opportunistic. And if there's an opportunity to go looking, especially for food, they will take it. And of course, it's only noise and people and traffic, dogs, which frighten wild animals. Wild animals like quiet to go about their business. Most carnivores actually are crepuscular and use this uh, twilight time to hunt, it seems to be. Because that just reflects what we were saying earlier on about that 5.30 a.m. in the morning sighting of that woman and where she found a deer. So it's a bit of both, actually. Well, Frank, that's been a splendid interlude for this episode. And I'm sure we'll speak with you again before too long. But for now, Frank, thanks very much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. What do you think about big cats and spirit animals? Oh, people have big cats as spirit animals. If you look at the way the animal lives, because animals were our first teachers, mm-hmm. you want to go right the way back to when we weren't doing much at all, we were just being. Yeah. We learned from them by say, why is that bush's berries always got berries on? None of the animals eat that. Well, probably because it's poisonous and kill you if you eat it. You know, that's a simple thing. So Trying to get back to a more natural way of being, you know, shamanism is being part of the land, of connecting to everything. And so the animal can teach us something. So when you have a spirit animal, an animal guide, 
a power animal, whatever you want to call them, that animal can teach you what its way of life. Looking at the cats, the way it moves, its stealth. We were talking about how that cat walks across the road. It doesn't shoot across the road like an ordinary cat will. And that's because it conserves the energy it needs. So if you're looking at a cat as your power animal, you're looking at think before you jump into something. And when you do, you go for it and you're not going to miss. You know, have the courage to get out there and get there, walk quietly, walk softly, think about things. So your cat can teach you an awful lot. And that's why when they come to the zoo and they have that connection with, they'll watch its behavior. And like I said, that will come over to them. If you look at, say, somebody has an owl, an owl sees in two different levels. It sees, you know, on our level, it sees the outside of its eyes like ours, the middle of the eyes is telescopic, so two kinds of sight. So then you look higher again and you look through the higher self, so a second sight, a third eye, a different dimension. The way the animals act can teach us so much, that kind of connection, because they're out there surviving and they've been out there before us and they're still here. You know, owls are, what, six million years old and we're not even a million years old or so we think. (laughs) You know, and those guys are still there because of the way they – so they can teach us so much. Yeah. And you get lots of people come to the zoo because they've got a lion as a power animal. You'll find, too, that the people that – some of the people that actually have seen these things are more – nature orientated we're talking about the quarry workers you know they're out there really early in the morning and they can tell you all sorts about the land my son works on the farm and he can tell me that deer walk through our village down the street and um, nobody can believe that because it's the village (laughs) but they do because he's out there at that time you know they're more disposed to thinking that way. And I think, you know, with the shamans, it's giving you that kind of connection with a different order of life. The way the puma lives and acts is completely different to the way a lynx lives and acts. So if you had a lynx, it would be linking you to a whole different type of energy. The lynx has got these uh, most enormous back powerful legs, you know, and it jumps really high, but it's very good at hiding. Keeper of secrets, it's called, isn't it? It's very good at keeping that, hiding out of the way, using this huge spring and leap forward. They have confidence to move. Different lifestyle gives you that different key to what it can teach you. Like bear, then... uh, you know, winter time you should take stock of things, plan. And that's probably a problem with a lot of modern living. We don't do that because we still have to work. We still have to do the same things in the winter as we do in the summer because we can, because we've got heating and electric lighting. So we burn ourselves out. Yes, we keep busy. Yeah, and because we can't go off and do nothing in the winter, so you need to make sure that you make provision in your life to take stock of things and to plan things and have a certain amount of your time to just to do that. Something that people discover, presumably, it's not you can't contrive, you can't say, oh, I want to take an interest in pumas or I want to take an interest in bears or owls. People just discover it and evolve into it by observing them and picking up their vibes and watching their characteristics and thinking that fits. I can learn something from those characteristics. That's sort of what you're saying, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's like somebody that's never had an interest in much before. and. They might come and say to me, do you know, I keep coming across herons. Never used to see them. I see them everywhere, you know, and I don't even like them. <laughs> so look at what it can teach you. Watch how graceful it is. Not just look at it as this funny bird that will do this, that and the other. And you pick up things that you can learn from it. I had a lady ask me, we did what we call journeying to find her spirit animal. And it was fox. And I said, oh, you've got a beautiful fox as your guide. She said, well, I don't want that. She said, I don't even like them. So I said, well, I'm afraid you, <laughs> you haven't got any choice. 
I said, go home. Don't go and read on the internet what a fox power animal is. Go and read how foxes live, what they do, what they're like, the family orientated, you know. Just look at what they and see if you can find any correlation that might help you or you might even begin to like it. And she came back to me about two weeks later and she said, you're right, you know. She said, there's so many things that I do that is fox-like. She said, well, I like them better now. <laughs> and I said, now you've connected. Go and look at them in the zoo or watch them in the field if people know where they are, where they den up. I can tell you where some are. Mm. Watch them and see what it can teach you now. Now you've made a connection. See what it can teach you. And that's why, you know, what I was saying about the cats, so a cat will come right over to the fence and sit there where it don't with other people. Why don't it ever come over when I'm there? You know, well, I don't know. It's because I do, because I can see the spirits connecting. Yeah, and there's something enigmatic about the black leopards, isn't there? And Well, black jaguars as well, and the panther vibes. Yeah, the melanistics, yeah. I suppose if you haven't experienced those at zoos, you wouldn't have seen it directly, but you can understand that there is that, um, why people would crave to keep them and crave to link to the spirit and the soul of a panther. When anything's the wrong colour, like the melanistics, things are black and they should be something as powerful as a jaguar. I mean, personally, the colour of them is amazing. But the black ones, they still have those spots. Just the overall appearance from a distance is black, but it's not. Still has spots. It's still there. So it's walking in the shadow lands, you know, on the shadow side. You know, they're so well camouflaged with their spots. You can't see them. So too is it when it's uh, melanistic. But then it won't walk in the sunshine, it will walk in the shadows. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of teaching you that this powerful energy has to be even more incognito. So it's teaching you to just be that little bit more cautious, that little bit more in the shade. <laughs> yeah. You can see a tiger or a, or your leopard right out in the sun. Yeah. But you don't see it because it's completely camouflaged. You would see a black one, but you wouldn't if it was in the shadows. Yeah, very interesting. Presumably you know what your spirit animal is, do you? Yeah, I have I have several. You normally have one that's with you all your life, and then you'll have others come in when you need that particular energy. So I've known since I was a small child I have an owl. I've always had owl with me. And when I became a late teenager, I had the raven came and everything turned out to be ravens, which is why we're called ravens well. I wondered that, yeah. And I also have bear, cave bear. All those animals teach me something completely different. So when I'm at a loss of how to deal with the situation, then I will I'll meditate and see if I can get something, a message from them. Not the bear turns around and says, you should do this, but... <laughs> by meditating into the way the animals are, then the things that bear means will come to the fore. Okay. So, you know, step back, take a breath, think about it, plan for it, and be strong, you know. And, of course, bear's very protective. There's nothing worse than a mummy bear. <laughs> Who needs to be protective, yeah. <laughs> You use that technique for guidance and advice and, and mentoring at times in your life, Andy. Yeah, I do. Um, what I do to, I'm a drum make. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm a shamanic drum make. So when we make the drums, we connect to the spirit of the animal that we use the skin for. It's usually deer, horse, reindeer, goat. Mm. When they're making that, they make that connection with that animal. Then when they do their journey and when they do their meditation, if you like, the animal lives again. And we always say, join the herd and run again. Yeah, you're literally using their vibrations, aren't you? That's right, yeah. That connects with your heart and to the heartbeat of the mother, as we call our earth. So that makes the connection. 
Do you do this with some people and they simply just cannot get it? Or do you think most people can get it if they have the patience to listen and try to understand what you're trying to communicate? Or do some people just feel, no, this is too... It depends on if I'm talking to people who don't know anything about it, you get a different reaction. So if I've got a group of people who are interested, but not really thought about it that way, then I'll say, well, I'll teach you about, we'll do a little bit of meditation or a little bit of relaxation or mindfulness, as you call it today. And while you're breathing and you're not here in this room, I'll take you on a little journey. And I do, um, I play my drum and then I'll take them through uh, what we call a guided meditation. So a walk through the woods and you sit down and you breathe and then you listen and then an animal may come to you, it may not come to you. And it doesn't matter if it's a real one or it's a dragon or a unicorn. It doesn't matter that they're not real animals. It's the energy, the spirit of that being that is what you're connecting to. We do our little chat, and then at the end of it, I usually say, did you get anything or not get anything? If you didn't get anything, then hang on because I was talk to you so I usually tell them what their little animal means that they've got on with and then those that didn't get anything at all and don't quite understand it then I talk to them about you know do they have a favorite animal or is there an animal they often get bought as a model or something at home (laughs) can go that way or I have some cards with animals on as it's your intuition that picks a card and I say well this is what that means Usually when I speak to them and tell them what the animal means, they go, I understand. I know exactly what you're on about. That's so true. <laughs> I say, well, this is the animal then to start looking into. They sort of go, oh, God, how did you know that? <laughs> no, I didn't know. This is what this animal's telling me, <laughs> telling you. And then people who do know about it often want to know a bit more, but not really known how to contact it or what to do. It's just an energy and a, and a way to um, help you, you know? If you want to, if you want to use it that way. Yeah, yeah, we can call it that, you can call it anything else. What about if people have an animal that comes to them in their dreams regularly? Yeah. Is that is that similar or is that just about the coincidence of dreams? No, if it's something that comes regularly, then it's a way of the animal getting to contact that person. Okay. So it will be a guiding animal. There isn't really much coincidence because, you know, when I was a child, I liked animals, but, you know, that was it. But why did people bring me things that were half dead for me to look after? Oh, I found this one. You'll look after it, won't you? You know, and I could do it. I had an empathy. So you were nudged into your calling. So I still didn't want to do that. I wanted to be an artist. I went to college and did an art degree. (laughs) Eventually, I was pushed into it. I was saved by my animals and um, did veterinary nursing. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So, you know, what gave you, did you wake up one day and say, read a bit in the paper, oh, that's interesting. I mean, we all look at, oh, there's a black cat or out on the moors or something. Not many people go into it into such depth. You know, I've always put it down to, well, that's what I'm always thinking about because I have to. And it's not yeah. It's not like I would particularly sort of single them out as, I mean, I do think they are utterly remarkable animals, but every animal is utterly remarkable in its own way as it has to be. It is, yeah. If you just understand one more than the other, you do tend to give it priority. But, you know, I don't want to necessarily think they're any more remarkable than any other part of the natural kingdom. Well, no, but it's just something that speaks to you. Yeah. Try to look at it from a different view. I do a lot of analysis, but I do it from a very rational way rather than from a soulful way. I know exactly what you mean. You know, I come from a scientific family. I did science myself in the end. It's a case of not letting your rational brain take over all the time. You know, when you say to yourself, well, I'm always getting, oh, it's because I um, have a lot to do with them. Don't let that happen. Now I fly owls and I keep owls. When I was a kid, I didn't. Yeah. And I didn't get owls and fly owls and, and stuff like that because of what I think I've always had with me. 
is that they always ended up for me to fix up. And I always managed to get them well again when others couldn't, you know? <laughs> Rational brain says, oh, it's just because you can do that. No, you mustn't let that. <laughs> It's like when you try to meditate, don't let rational brain kick in. Some people might be good at the technical aspects of flying them without having that deeper connectivity, perhaps. Whereas you presumably have that deeper connectivity and that helps you with the techniques of flying them. Yeah. You're reminding me now, Wendy, that a lot of the reports I've had are because I do a stand and take reports at rural shows and people come to me and I find most of them credible. And on one particular day i've forgotten which one it was somewhere i had one person in the morning and one person in the afternoon come to me with the identical type of report and i'd never had this type before and they both said they were flying a harris hawk flying a harris hawk and that it dispatched a rabbit on landing and the rabbit it didn't get it right and the rabbit let out a distress call yeah And within a few minutes, as they were sort of recovering the hawk and putting it away with them, they saw on the edges of the area, in the scrub, looking at them, a black panther. (laughs) And there was two people. The guy in the afternoon, when he was sort of halfway through the story, I thought, I know what you're going to say. A bloke said the same thing in a different geographical area in the morning. It was remarkable uh, on the same day. and. It's totally credible, isn't it, that the, the distressed rabbit call had drawn in a nearby black leopard and it was yeah. eyeing up the situation and then decided, well, you know, the rabbit's not there, it's something else has taken it, but it was still watching the scene. I haven't got a chance for it, yeah. You can't say that that would happen often. How many people go out hawking and that happens? Yeah. You might go out and say, I was out, I'm going to shoot some rabbits, and I saw, and then the other person says... You know, oh, I was flying my hawk, but both saying the same thing. That's definite confirmation. Relatively similar one, which is remarkable. That Cleve Hill is the highest point of the Cotswolds. Uh, you can see it from Cheltenham Racecourse and big wild part of the Cotswolds. And you get kite flyers there. And this guy said he was the last one down on a balmy summer evening and he had his kite on a long string. And he said when he landed it, out from the gorse came a panther to go at it and then started smelling it, sniffing it and investigating it and realising it was inanimate and nothing to prey upon. <laughs> but, and he phoned his girlfriend in a state of shock. Some types of reports, you know, you have plenty of them. I've had several builders on roofs looking, at, looking out into the open countryside and then seeing the sheep being worried and then seeing a because they've got a vantage point or people, you know, seeing them cross the road or whatever. But the kite flyer one and the Harris Hawks one, you give them credibility because of the detail and because they're ones you couldn't easily make up and invent. Oh, no, no. Right, Wendy, we'd probably better leave it there. It's getting late. Thank you for all those different perspectives from the zoo perspective and the, the tracking perspective and the spirit animal perspective. Really grateful for you taking us through all those points. And thank you very much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. And thank you. And you're most welcome. Okay, straight away after my conversation with Wendy, I want to clarify the point about possible wandering cats let out on a temporary basis and expected to return home later. Now, people have reported some of these cats wearing a collar and looking quite confident rather than lost and bewildered. So that does beg the question about whether they are more like pets allowed out for a while, raised by owners from very young, and perhaps declawed. Anyway, it's yet one more thing to speculate on as we range over this complex subject. Now, amongst the links on the website for this episode, we have put the trailer of a splendid recent documentary on a black leopard in Kabini Reserve in India. It's called Hiding in the Shadows, The Real Black Panther. It's a National Geographic documentary and it compares the behaviour of a black leopard sticking more to the shadows in order to stay undercover and less noticed than even a normal stealthy spotted leopard. And of course that's very much what Wendy was describing earlier in this episode when she was talking about black leopards sticking to the shade and the shadows. And all the background information on the documentary really emphasises how long the film crew spent trying to find the young black leopard, who they called Saya, 
even with the help of the guards and rangers in that reserve, and those people are on the ground and experienced in spotting and tracking the wildlife all the time. So, hiding in the shadows, the real black panther is well worth looking out for on National Geographic, and you can Google that title just to get the trailer. And in the media at present, there are yet more stories about the commotion over wandering savannah cats and the reaction they create when they turn up in people's back gardens and parks and shock people who are not used to them or even aware of them. In fact, we've had Sharon Larkin from Cumbria booked to come on the show for a while now. She's an experienced investigator who I've known for a long time, and as well as hearing her encounters, we will get her feedback on the reality of owning an F2 savannah cat. We'll hear about its behaviour inside the house and when out and about with Sharon on walks on a lead. So, Cumbria panthers and savannah cats will be coming soon. Meanwhile, in our next episode, we'll be with Angela in Somerset. We'll hear of her several close encounters with large black cats, seemingly leopards, and we'll learn about how her dogs have learned to sense a big cat when out for their walks. So, Somerset, including the Blackdown Hills, coming next. As ever, thank you for listening in, and I hope everyone is coping with the concerns and frustrations of this pandemic situation. Hope you can join us next time, and bye for now.